I think wise leaders are able to manage norm strength really deliberately. They know when to tighten up, they know when to loosen up, they know how to bring groups together that have different strengths that really are suspicious of each other. The tighter groups don't want to lose control and the looser groups don't want to lose autonomy. Welcome to the All Wisdom Podcast with Charles Cassidy and Igor Crossman. Over the next hour, we'll be dissecting the latest research from the emerging field of wisdom science. We'll discuss what it means for each of us and for society in terms of reasoning and living more wisely in the 21st century. Today, we'll be talking about wisdom and social norms, a big topic which uh, deals with a wide range of implications for all of us. First of all, I would like to thank our listeners. You've been great so far. Please continue rating us on various social uh, media platforms and your favorite podcast device. Today, we have a special guest, Michelle Gelfand, who is a distinguished university professor at the University of Maryland. Uh, Michelle is here with us to talk a little bit about her latest work on social norms and to enlighten us, because neither uh, Charles nor I know that much about the norms. We uh, tend to be so-called rule breakers, and Michelle will explain to us what that means. Good morning, Michelle. How are you doing? I'm great. Great to be here. So to kick us off, I'd like to start with some uh, real-life examples. Maybe we can start by thinking a little bit about what were the most dramatic norm violations that each of us has experienced firsthand or vicariously. Um, I'll, <laughs> I'll pass it on to Charles first, then Michelle, and then maybe I can come up with something too. So Charles, what about you? Well, I th- if you hang out with Igor Grossman for more than 20 minutes, you see a whole host of norm violations. Um, they just come pouring out of him at light speed. But, <laughs> but um, other than that, I, I was trying to think about this example, uh, think of an example of this earlier. And one that stuck with me was when I was on the bus coming back from Heathrow Airport a couple of years ago, there was a guy who got on the bus. And I think he had, I think he was on some sort of hallucinogenic, I'm going to guess, because he was incredibly animated and very, very loud and very violent in his kind of behavior. But the response of everyone else was quite interesting. Like, he wasn't actually attacking anyone. He was just standing there making a huge amount of noise in a quite confined space. And everyone just completely froze. It was almost like you didn't want to create any stimulus for him mm-hmm. to respond to. Uh, and it was kind of terrifying. I don't know, you know, we have an expert with us, Michelle, maybe. Can you tell me, does that count as a, a norm violation? Because if you're under the influence of something, are you not consciously transgressing a norm? And maybe that doesn't count. I don't know. What do you, Does that count? <laughs> I would say it counts. Right. I think it that, like it you know, these kinds of substances just reduced our self-regulation. Right. And, you know, what's interesting is your point is that in order to follow social norms, we need to have self-regulation. We need to be able to sort of uh, have normative radar where we yeah. understand what the context is. And then we have to manage our impulses. I mean, we can all be doing all sorts of weird things all the time. And it's remarkable that we don't violate norms on, on a mm-hmm. regular basis. We're an ultra normative species, I think. Yeah. Um, and so in this for case, I think, no, he might not have been aware of it, but he certainly is responsible for that, those violations. Yeah, it was a quite terrifying experience. And, and mm-hmm. interesting, again, how there was an instinct that everyone had that you just had to not move. Like everyone sort mm-hmm. of froze and everyone kind of knew that that was the only safe way of getting through this. Um, mm-hmm. So it's inter- there was a kind of social intelligence there as well playing out. Which Yeah, and it's also a very high population density context, right? So it right. raises issues of, is this a safe situation? I can't really escape it. So you're yeah. frozen in fear because um, it affects everyone. It's a coordination issue. It's yeah. not like it's something that you could just walk away from because you're stuck on a bus, right? right? And that's interesting that you say coordination issue. It felt that the response 
from the rest of the people on the bus was the sort of coordinated response. It, it kind of felt mm-hmm. like there was um, an yeah. implicit understanding that we all needed to, <laughs> we yeah, all needed it's, it's to fasc- just completely yeah. freeze. Yeah, yeah, it's fascinating because, you know, we've been doing some neuroscience work on detection of social norms. And I think it's a really fascinating area that is unrepresented in, in neuroscience because we are, as I mentioned, ultra-normative species and we have this incredible ability to detect norm violations within a mm. millisecond mm. or less. <laughs> and it's also mm-hmm. a collective phenomenon we collectively can yeah. can identify these and, and it's really important in terms of our ability to coordinate that it's not an isolated problem we as a group immediately detect this socially and collectively would presumably be functional you know in in sort of our historical yeah. evolutionary past yeah okay so then the next one you michelle uh, <laughs> what uh, you you traveled around the world what are the nor violations you think are most peculiar that you uh, ever experienced? Well, I mean, I'm thinking about times when I've inadvertently violated norms and gotten called out on it <laughs> when I travel. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, for example, um, I was actually recently in Germany, in Frankfurt, in the airport, and I sort of accidentally cut the line. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. I try to violate norms in all kinds of settings. You know, every so often I'll stand facing backwards in elevators or, right. you, know, I'm trying to like take, you know, kind of walk up to people and ask them, can I have a bite of your hamburger, you know, just to see what the reactions are. I know it's right. it's kind of embarrassing. It's, it makes you realize how, you know, difficult it is to do this because even for me, I study this, but it's still hard to yeah. do. And, you know, in Germany, it was very interesting because I think this is another point that people in different cultures react differently when people violate norms. In, in Germany, people, in my experience, are pretty direct in telling you, you know, stop doing that. That's right. not OK. Yes. Whereas in, in, in Japan, where, you know, my kids were on the train when we were there for a conference and they were, you know, like American kids, you know, kind of loud, people just kind of uh, ostracized, you know, kind of walked away. And, you know, it, mm. it was clearly a much more indirect response. Um, and so I think that's a fascinating area for, for study right now. I would say the other context where I see a lot of norm violations are in my very own classroom, <laughs> it, you know, and this varies around the world, but that's a really interesting setting because it's a context mm-hmm. when you think where people will be following the rules. Mm. It's a pretty strong situation in, in sort of a psychological sense where people, uh, there's a restricted range of variation that, you know, you have affordable, like in a library uh, or a funeral um, where there's really, mm. you know, you'll get censored pretty quickly. And, I, and I've over the years seen some really bizarre types of behaviors from, you know, eating and listening to headphones and, you know, dancing and all sorts of strange <laughs> things in American classrooms. Sounds like your lessons are obviously pretty exciting, (laughs) people getting up and dancing in the aisles. Well, it's just, you know, kind of like swaying around, listening to music. And, you know, I think I've come to the conclusion, you know, that when students come, you know, from abroad to the U.S. in particular, and they're like, why is this happening? And I try to explain, you know, it's a different context. It's a looser context in the United States. Mm. There's a wider range of behavior that you'll see all over the place. On campuses, you'll see people talking really loudly or wearing, you know, not bikinis, but, you know, essentially, you know, the the range of variations is really mm. high. Um, and so those are the kinds of things that I've, I've seen um, around the world and in my own backyard, so to speak. One of the times I had big trouble was when I was driving in the South and I'm a New Yorker. And so flipping people off is pretty common. It's almost like a affectionate. <laughs> you know, I also flipped people off in Champaign-Urbana when I was there as a grad student, affectionately, you know, and, <laughs> but we, we were in the South driving and you know, this is an honor culture, tight culture and um, indirect culture for sure to maintain that kind of politeness. And, you know, my husband actually flipped someone off on the highway that cut us off. And that resulted in a pretty big car chase. Wow. Uh, oh, boy. A terrifying moment. I wrote about it in the book in Rulemakers or Breakers. Um, it's one of those moments you're like, wow, I live in this country, but like even I was socialized here and I still am kind of uh, need some more cultural intelligence when traveling in the South. Yeah, for that's sure. right. 
Yeah, and the, like you say, the danger is is probably greater when um, the cultures look on some level quite similar. Um, there's isn't there's a, some quote about you know you, the UK and America two nations divided by a common language or something, um, which so my wife is American. So that comes up quite a lot. <laughs> so I, I know how that goes. But Michelle, I think it's time to get into the tight and loose um, side of things. So let's dive in there. So I, I, prior to sort of reading your work, you know, I was aware of different ways that cultures were sort of defined. You had this idea of maybe traditional cultures versus modern cultures, or maybe collective cultures versus kind of individualistic kind of cultures. So could you tell us a kind of a short summary of how the tight and loose concept works and, and what it sort of brings that these other kind of ways of framing cultures uh, doesn't bring? Yeah, it's a great question because, you know, the field of cross-cultural psychology is actually, um, you know, has a long past but a short history. I say that because, you know, people like Herodotus, if you read the histories, really focuses a lot on cultural differences. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's not a scientist per se, but, you know, you read that book and you can see a lot of modern day wisdom, Igor, <laughs> to say, you know, about culture. Um, and it's really mainly, uh, of course, in anthropology. And then in the in the 50s and 60s in cross-cultural psychology, where we started to kind of think about how do we think about the dimensions on which cultures vary, almost like you can think about it mm. akin to personality at a different level. You know, we know we have a big five, even though individuals vary a lot, um, we can have a more parsimonious um, typology of that. And, and for a long time, um, researching cross-cultural psychology, which had been on the fringes of psychology, um, for many years, was focused really pretty exclusively on collectivism, uh, and including myself. I worked with Harry Trianis at Illinois, working on distinctions of vertical and horizontal collectivism. And it occurred to me at some point that like the field is pretty narrow in its scope. Um, it, it's almost akin to studying like one dimension of personality when it comes to culture. Of course, others were also nominating other dimensions of values in terms of uncertainty avoidance and other constructs coming from Hofstede and, and Sholem Schwartz. So it would be like but sort I, of looking at personality just through extrovert versus introvert, for example. Yeah, it, it was just a matter of like, we're ready to really kind of broaden our toolkit was sure. the idea. It's, it's not meant to kind of uh, wipe out or, or it's not meant to uh, negate the importance of the dimension, but it was really mm. more to say, well, maybe it's something uh, we need to broaden our focus, including moving beyond just values um, to social norms or unwritten rules that sometimes become formalized. And, uh, you know, the psychology started in the West. So we focus a lot on individual types of characteristics like values and beliefs. Uh, and maybe if psychology started in, in China, we would have had a better theory about social norms and social situations, you know, kind of the big five of situations. So, you know, when I started doing research on this, I realized that there were already people talking about this. Um, for example, um, Sandra Carpenter had done some work on mm -hmm. tightness, the strength of norms and collectivism in the human relationship area files and traditional societies showing that they were distinct. Uh, then Harry Triandis talked about this construct in the psych review, talking about how there's the sort of independent self, the collective self, which we tend to, you know, think about when it comes to collectivism and family relations uh, versus the public self, the kind of self that yeah. relates to norms. And, and so I started uh, researching the construct and found that in fact, they're related, but they're distinct. Um, and, and part of the exciting issue was thinking about how you know, we're kind of confounding them because a lot of research was being done between East Asia and the United States, which confounds tightness and collectivism and, and individualism and looseness. Mm -hmm. um, so, for example, in our data uh, that was published um, about eight years ago in Science, where we compared nations around the world, uh, we could see that there are definitely tight cultures that are collectivistic. Um, in our data, that's like Singapore and Japan and, and individualistic cultures that are loose. And that includes places like New Zealand and the United States. But mm -hmm. there were also... Uh, the sort of off diagonals, so to speak, that were really interesting. Uh, in our data, that included places like Germany and Austria, which veered tight, but also tend to be individualistic. 
Uh-huh. And also on the collectivism side, we could see cultures in the in Latin America and Spain and Greece tended to be very collectivistic, very family oriented, but also quite loose, very permissive when it came to social norms. Uh, we later found the same related but distinct correlation in the U.S. 50 states data. For example, Georgia is quite tight, but it's collectivistic, whereas Hawaii is collectivistic, but it's pretty loose. And likewise, Kansas is pretty tight, but it's pretty individualistic. Uh, right. So the, the fact that you're getting these off-axis things suggests that obviously you needed another dimension. Yeah, and it suggests that it's kind of exciting to get um, our uh, expand our toolkit in cross-cultural mm. psychology and then um, understand uh, cultures with even more nuances. We haven't uh, given a little overview of what tight and loose means yet. That's um, right. So yeah, I, was thinking, I was waiting um, for that. Because I was thinking, yeah, I, this will make sense to me. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. Um, people listening to it won't know what we're talking about yet. You know, the idea is that all groups for millennia have had social norms or rules for behavior. Um, we follow rules constantly. Um, in fact, we need them desperately to predict each other's behavior and to coordinate. And often you don't really think about it. We're sort of, um, they're omnipresent, but invisible. I mean, and once you start really thinking about it, like I do, you think, wow, it's a miracle that we can coordinate so much. You know, we all drive on the right side of the road versus just any side of the road. We we behave ourselves in restaurants and libraries mm-hmm. uh, and, and elevators. Uh, we have sex in private settings rather than just having sex, you know, on buses and in movie theaters. <laughs> we we follow these rules. We invented these norms. Like they're a distinctly human phenomenon in the sense that we have very complex norms that we pass across generations. And, you know, luckily we, we, we develop these because they help us coordinate. They have a really important function. And the idea is that some groups need stricter norms. They need stronger glue um, to coordinate. They have a, a greater need for norms because, or strong norms because um, they, of their ecologies and their histories. And I can get into that in a minute, what causes the evolution of, mm. of tightness. And other groups, you know, they can afford to have more permissive norms and, and they um, have a wider range of behavior that's acceptable. Um, and so the idea is that they're universal part of human sociality, that we need norms, but that they vary in their strength and they vary in how much people are punished. Right. Or violating them and that there is a rationale for why this this these differ. I, I do want to just mention also that, you know, they change. And also we're used to navigating situations of different norm strength all the time. Um, you know, we we shift our behavior when we're in a library or mm-hmm. a funeral or a job interview dramatically to have greater norm radar and impulse control and a lot of the psychological affordances of, of strong norms. And we easily, without even realizing it, shift our behavior when we're at a party or, or a bus mm-hmm. or, you know, a, a public park, you know, I, and even in a colloquium. I mean, Igor, I would I would ask you to try to do this sometime. I've tried to do it. I can't bring myself to do it. Is to just start like doing some weird things in the middle of a colloquium. You know, just like break out some rum or break out some bourbon or, you know, start next time. On the table Michelle, next time I'll bring some rum and bourbon for you. <laughs> you know, I, you know, get on the phone talking to, you know, your wife or, you know, because, the, you know, we constantly navigate the strength of norms in our daily life. But what I've been able to look at is how even given that we we have different norm strengths in our daily life, cultures, groups, um, regions, uh, people from different social classes, different organizations have stronger or weaker uh, rule strength that they have to adapt to on a daily basis. And my question has always been, what causes to evolve and what are the consequences for groups? What are the trade-offs? And is there any kind of homology or similarity of this mm. across different contexts, whether it's nations or states or organizations? Is there anything common about uh, what this normative psychology produces? I was just going to just to clarify for listeners. So when you use the term tight, you're referring to a culture because they all cultures have social norms. It's not about whether 
a culture has social norms. It's, That's right. it's about how closely people adhere to those norms and how brutally they're punished if they transgress them. Is that what type? That's right. Is? Yeah. That's right. It means you could sort of think about it in shorthand as strict versus permissive. Sure. You know, again, we can zoom into any context and find even in a strict society, we can have some domains that are pretty loose sure. and vice versa. So it's I don't want to sort of get into this um, stereotype of all cultures. What's interesting is try to explain when you zoom in with this kind of microscope how you might predict when some domains might be loose, even if overall the culture is tight or loose. Yeah. Because as right. I said, if you get either extreme in either direction, if there's no domains that are strict or no domains that are loose, then societies start to have a lot of problems. So let's uh, get into that. So like our topic is wisdom and norms. And we're talking about tight and loose cultures, coordinated norms and adherence to strict norms versus being fairly loose with norms. So why do we need social norms in the first place? And uh, what is there in terms of wisdom for the society? What do social norms bring? Yeah, I was, I was mentioning, you know, we can't, live without social norms. We take them for granted constantly that we can have these rules that we're all following um, Mm -hmm. and that we help us to predict each other's behavior and to coordinate Mm -hmm. in in really unprecedented ways. And it's fascinating, you know, even infants have been shown to have some kind of normative radar, even before they have any Mm -hmm. kind of language ability. There's some interesting studies that have been done where you know, infants are brought in and, and they're interacting with puppets. They're watching puppets and some puppets are behaving really badly. They're beating up other puppets <laughs> and other puppets are being nice to puppets. Right. And, uh, and then they simply look at, you know, what the dependent variable is, which puppet do the kids, the infants reach for? And it's fascinating to see that even before language, infants are reaching for puppets who are, who are norm, you know, followers, um, and they're avoiding puppets that are doing all these bad things. By the time kids are three, we see evidence that they're actively berating puppets who are doing bad things. This happens very early in life that we start to develop this normative radar. And so it seems to be a really important function for human groups that we were able to scale up in our, in our evolutionary past by being able to follow rules. Um, and, and so I think that's what the function is. It has to do with coordination, predictability, identity, um, and it happens really um, very, very early. So then if, then if the norms are so good, why are we not all super tight? Why do we vary? And it's not only from one culture to another. It can vary from one state in the United States, from another political orientation, like if you are like a more Democrat or Republican, or even individual differences. What does it bring one to be loose then if there is such an advantage of having social norms, especially in the modern society? Yeah, so this is a, such a great question because, you know, I think you know, for many years, think about cultural differences in a descriptive way versus a, you know, why do they evolve in the first place? Is there some kind of rationale? And of course, not everything has a rationale, but I was looking right. around at this, this data that we collected across 30 plus nations and the tight cultures didn't have a whole lot in common uh, in, in sort of a first glance. They didn't share a common language or tradition or religion or geography. But what I, I had a hunch was that again, linking to that function of social norms, that the groups that have a lot of threat, coordination problems, will need stronger norms, given the function mm-hmm. of norms. And, and actually, before I did this study, I chose, I mean, 30 nations is not a big sample size. You know, it's nothing to write home about. You know, at some point, you have to stop collecting data. It's but more I chose, than two. <laughs> it's worth more than two, but I would not really kind of oversell it. It's, I chose the countries based on uh, objective indicators of threat. So, for example, in political science, there's a database, the Crisis Archives, that tracks how many potential invasions countries have had over the last hundred years. That's a human-made threat. Or how much population density is there in a very small area 
uh, even dating back to 1500? Or how many natural disasters has a country have? You know, countries around the world mm-hmm. aren't randomly assigned to these things. They tend to, uh, have, you know, have had Mother Nature's fury for centuries, like in mm-hmm. Japan. And so what we did was we measured those kinds of threats. This is correlational. Later, we tried to look at this from an evolutionary point of view with some modeling. Mm-hmm. But we could see very clearly that the countries that tend to have a lot of threat tend to be tighter. And, it, you know, to me, it made a lot of sense uh, because when you have a lot of threat, especially when it's collective threat, you need rules to coordinate to survive. Um, you need to know that people are not going to defect in these situations. You want strong internal control mechanisms so that people uh, will behave themselves in these settings. They really could result in chaos. And and that's what we found in the U.S. Uh, 50 states as well, the states that tend to be tighter. And there's other factors I could talk about that promote tightness and looseness. But this is a major one. Uh, we also had greater threat. I was just thinking, um, you know, super tight uh, organizational structure is the army, right? The army is like that their very sort of uh, reason for existence is to deal with threats. So consequently, that's about as tight as you can get, isn't it? You know, regimented militaristic setup, you know, if you had a loose army, I don't imagine you get a whole lot done. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Actually, you know, it, organizations follow a very similar pattern. The, the organizations that are quite tight um, and have certain types of people and practices and leaders um, tend to be in industries where there's a lot of coordination needs and safety problems, like airlines or nuclear power plants or military, or context where there's a lot of public accountability, like lawyers or government. Whereas what about they, McDonald's? <laughs> McDonald's tend to be pretty tight because it's a manu. It's you know you have a yeah. lot of you know sort of tight margins you're trying to deal with. Manufacturing tends to be very tight. Mm. Um, and so what's fascinating, uh, you know, in an op-ed I wrote last year, I talked about United after their big PR fiasco because I said, look, not, United needs to be tight. They need rules. We don't want these people making all sorts of weird decisions, like you were saying. <laughs> you know, it's, it, but at the same time, they probably tightened up too much. Organizations, nations, groups, they can veer tight or loose for good reasons based on the demands of their ecologies. But there's certainly the case that sometimes they become a, a not so calibrated and they become too tight or too loose. Uh, Tesla is a good example of the opposite or, or Uber. Oh, yeah. you know, they are industries where they should veer loose given their demands, but they arguably got too loose. And in, in my writing recently, I've been talking about agency and norms and how do we loosen up tight systems that have gotten too tight? I call this flexible tightness or how do we you know, structure or provide more, you know, tightness in a very loose system when it's gone astray. And I call that structured looseness. And, and so that's something that is important because groups do need to veer tight or loose for different reasons, but they also can sometimes get miscalibrated with their environment and need to actually deliberately inject some of the the counterparts norm strength into their system. And part of the things I'm going to mention also is that, you know, tight loose provides a certain trade-off from our Research, you know, loose groups tend to be um, very open and tolerant, and they tend to be really um, creative and adaptable. But and and tight cultures struggle with those issues. But loose cultures are really pretty disorganized. They can get really disorganized and quasi chaotic. Yeah. Whereas whereas tight cultures are really synchronized and they have a lot of self control um, and they're uh, have much more order. So there's a trade off between Mm. order and openness that goes along with this distinction that has to be balanced. You know, which one, uh, an example of a a way I find it's kind of really interesting and uh, puzzling Disney, Disney is so tight 
But I mean, if you think about it, it's all supposed to be about relaxing and having a good time and, and imagination, creativity and imagination. Yeah. <laughs> the company is incredibly tight. Yeah, that's uh, right. And when they went abroad, of course, they had, you know, tried to, in the Euro Disney case, which was a quasi-disaster at first, you know, they were trying to impose that American point of view. I think, you know, part of that has to do with the founders of a company also. You know, they have a big influence on the culture. And, and when they merged with Pixar, it was a really interesting uh, merger because they deliberately... I think we're pretty wise about that. I mean, Igor, from your perspective on wisdom, that they they really understood, you know, we have to, you know, we want to bring in the looseness of Pixar Mm. and balance it with the tightness of Disney. And those those mergers are fascinating. I've been studying mergers across tight and loose organizations. And without that kind of mindful negotiation of, uh, you know, from my understanding, Pixar you know, demanded that they keep their airplane, uh, flying airplane contests. <laughs> right. and they demanded to have other loose practices kept um, in their, you know, um, in their culture. And I think, you know, a lot of times when companies merge or, you know, people go abroad, they don't think about cultural intelligence. They think about, oh, we have these strategic compatibilities. But really yeah. what they have to do is understand how they're going to balance these strength of norms among other cultural characteristics. And often it's the case they find this out too late. It was recently the case with Amazon and Whole Food. They had very similar problems. I wrote about this in a Harvard Business Review article that, you know, they, they, you know, Amazon clearly veers tight and Whole Foods rules loose and they really needed each other to balance mm. out their norm strength. But they, uh, you know, it was a really rough road at the beginning because they, it wasn't deliberately discussed, the cultural compatibility uh, in terms of tight loose. That's interesting. I would have thought with, you know, so much money on the table that it, the organizational culture would be something people would be acutely aware of and they would, you know, give due, due consideration to. But you, you, by the sounds of it, you're saying that's kind of, it's almost invisible to them. You know, it's fascinating. Uh, because I'm not sure if this is universal. I'm speaking mainly from the American point of view that mm. often we, you know, we promote people based on their technical expertise. We send people abroad based on their really good at what they do, not because they're culturally intelligent and wise. Um, mm. We send people to the negotiation table, you know, you know, very high level negotiations. I actually got into this field because I was really terrified to think about our heads of state and other people going abroad to negotiate. America is very is a very young country, and we tend to not really think about culture. Well, maybe nowadays more so, but it's a melting pot. So I think that contributes to that kind of no. It's just about technical compatibility. It's mm. not about cultural compatibility. Mm. And and as a negotiation scholar, what I find fascinating is you know how do we use the terminology of tight loose or other constructs to help managers think about okay we need to tighten up here, but we need to loosen up here. We need to be deliberate about this. And, and maybe later on, I can tell you, I've been doing that even with my teenagers. I don't think it just applies mm-hmm. to organizations. We could, every entity has its own culture. And, you know, as many of you who have kids know, you know, that, you know, it's a terrifying time to raise teenagers, particularly in the United States. So you're trying to balance, you know, you don't want to be super tight. And we actually openly negotiate domains that are important to be strict in and domains that they can be pretty loose in. And, mm-hmm. You know, I have a husband from the Midwest. You know, sometimes we have to do our own mini negotiation first on this. Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, like I, I'm kind of veer loose. He kind of veers tight. He's a lawyer. So, you know, he's in that kind of industry that promotes that, uh, you know, kind of regulatory, you know, mindset. Right. But what it just means is that we can actually negotiate these differences ahead of time if we're aware of them and come up with some pretty win-win agreements, whether it's, you know, in your house or in organizations uh, or elsewhere. 
So um, I'm kind of interested a little bit in how tightness can go wrong because I can sort of under, I mean, intuitively the idea of looseness, I'm sure listeners would go, yeah, I, I've been in, you know, New Year's Eve parties that are completely loose and nothing happens. No one knows what's going on. So the idea of looseness not working, I think people intuitively get. So what happens? How, how is tightness, which, uh, you know, Igor started with this point, like surely if adhering to social norms gets, you know, enables us to operate in a social way, well, how could, how does tightness go wrong? Yeah, I think it's, you know, the kind of flip side issue of the sense of having so much repression and uh, lack of attention to agency and autonomy that you lose those uh, affordances that looseness has, like creativity and openness. Hmm. Um, and, and, and I think that that's a really important thing to think about because, you know, tightness doesn't just arise because of objective threat. You know, I've been studying it for many years in terms of actual disasters, actual invasions. Hmm. But when I started to bring people into the laboratory and do what I would call ecological priming, you know, sort of activate uh, perceptions about terrorism or invasions or natural disasters, you could see really quickly that people tighten up. I mean, these are experiments. They're not going to be tight for the rest of their lives. They're really, you know, they last not yeah. that long. But, you know, those are kind of fake threats. And they still produce a remarkably similar um, psychology. It, before the U.S. election, and before the election in France, we asked people uh, in both contexts about the perception they had about threat, whether it was from in the U.S., you know, ISIS or immigration or North Korea. And when people perceive threat, whether it's real or imagined, um, mm. they want stronger rules and they want strong leaders to help them to survive. It's this kind of evolutionarily, you know, instinctive mm. principle. And I think that's the issue we have with tightness these days is that we clearly have some groups, in, I'll say in the United States, that are objectively threatened, you know, that are mm. experiencing tremendous disruptions and do feel actually that they want to return to a tight social order. But we also have a context where there's a lot of fake threat, a lot of threat that we're unclear about, but it's producing this same psychology. And like I mentioned, that that will by necessity result in lower, you know, looseness trade-offs, which are creativity, openness, mm. adaptability. Mm. So that's where it gets to be really important to kind of calibrate. Uh, we just recently been developing uh, a new threat dictionary. <laughs> it's, a, it's, you know, another uh, attempt to sort of get at this quantitatively, like how are communities feeling threat, you know, as a psychological process on all sorts of types of threats, whether they're man-made or, or ecological or so forth. So Mm. hopefully we'll be able to start actually analyzing uh, and dropping threat meters basically <laughs> um, to, yeah. to try to track this i was thinking often it comes up in these podcasts uh, igor sort of goads me about brexit and tries to get me to you know <laughs> 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 but, um, I, it, this idea of threat and how it might lead you to sort of want different kinds of leadership feels really pertinent here because i'm probably in a privileged position where i where i don't see immigration as a threat to where i make my money so i'm kind of in a privileged position that that doesn't lead me to feel threatened so in a way it's, it's a bit rich of me to just say hey immigration's great because other people other sectors rightly or wrongly you know may sense uh, a great you know may have a great sense of threat around that which could understandably lead to them wanting sort of more sort of populist author authoritarian leadership i mean does that this this feels like it relates very much to what you're talking about yeah, I definitely. We didn't collect it in, in the UK, but I would say that part of it is that um, we have been in these echo chambers where, where we don't really think about the point of view of other people. In the US, you know, we start thinking, well, Trump supporters are racist or they're, you know, they're just mm -hmm. unintelligent. And, and that's really not productive. You know, I think the reality is that 
you know, we, we need to do, in my opinion, is sort of really deal with the uh, fake and the objective threat simultaneously. Um, you know, when you live in a large city, you know, you're not threatened so much by immigrants. You, there's a lot of diversity. Diversity promotes looseness and tolerance. But yeah. when you live in small rural communities where, you know, in our case in the U.S. are much tighter, you ha- start exaggerating um, the immigrants and, 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 and where they're coming from and w- what jobs they're taking. We're doing study now on misperception of immigration that follows up on Alicinia's recent work at Harvard on, you know, just the large gaps in perceptions on immigration. But at the same time, you know, we need to really deal with the threat in that people are experiencing. You know, the, the globalization train has, has, has left. And mm-hmm. Thomas Friedman talks a lot about the disruptions in these communities. And I think what in the U.S., you know, what we need to be doing is more top-down policy where we help people we bring together, um, as we see in Germany, for example, uh, universities and local communities and local businesses, and we help to promote these kinds of new work arrangements. In, in Germany, there's much more standardization, not surprisingly, uh, around um, these kinds of occupations in the working class where you're given certificates that can be used in many different organizations. In the U.S., you know, which is quasi loose, you know, we have, mm. you know, kind of, you'll make it on your own. You, you can mm. handle this. And that's a, that's a problem. I think that's a unique cultural context. I don't know how that, whether that's the so case in the, the UK. Does a loose culture, does that, is that like the Achilles heel of a loose culture in the sense that it's, it's more prone to be able to, um, threats could, you know, you're saying like in Germany, which is a tighter culture, that, um, perceived threat wouldn't be allowed to emerge because they have systems in place to prevent it. Whereas, because things are a bit more laissez-faire in the states, uh, there could be more likely a groundswell of perceived threat. Yeah, I think that in a sense, um, there's a question of, of how well do we deal with threats when there mm. hasn't been a place that has been threatened for its right. entire, you know, several, you know, many many centuries, um, yeah. where you've had that kind of um, cultural transmission around. You know, yeah, we need to kind of coordinate and we need to give up some agency or some some autonomy for security right I, I, this you know, is the, the whole US, kind of 9-11 sort of patriot act question isn't it really um you know the, the the it seemed that it was psychologically quite fundamentally disturbing for america to be you know attacked on their homeland yeah and i think there's a great resistance in, in the narratives in the u.s to to tighten up you know and mm. again that might be to your point because in our history we've been separated by two oceans uh, from other countries we haven't been in Europe where you know there's been constant conflict for centuries uh, at one point my daughter Hannah asked me she was probably 5 years old if we were worried about Mexico and Canada invading us at any point soon right. <laughs> <laughs> and i thought that was really a funny you know because we take it for granted i mean obviously in some parts of the country we've had threat we've had our own share of threat the civil war was a massive threat that you know the south felt invaded sure. uh, to this day is tighter but i think that there's this this narrative of but no like we're we we worried about tightness um even when there's threat and you see that even in recent discussions around the internet i I was arguing that we need to recalibrate the internet to have stronger norms i mean it's a loose wild wild Mm. west of of Mm. anti-normative behavior and and you know people really react strongly to that i've gotten some really big pushback on that idea that we need to kind of have a little more structured looseness and a little more civility and norms even the co-founder of the internet said, like, we, you should have a d- sort of driver's license to be able to operate right. on the web. You know, like, there should be yeah. some... We lived in many, many years face-to-face having accountability. And we, psychologists have known for decades that when you don't have accountability, when you don't have social presence, people behave in all sorts of bad ways. And But Americans, as I said, like, and, and that's... I don't want to overgeneralize, but in general, we struggle with this, you know, giving up um, some kind of latitude for security and for normative order. Mm. Uh, is that a kind of uh, do you sense us like 
different cult, uh, different countries have different, you know, long histories and America is based, you know, built from this idea of people leaving their, you know, original homelands because for one reason or another, they were, uh, they needed to step outside the structures that were there. So they're kind of, they, in their very um, sort of heritage, resist tightness. It's possible, you know, the founders effect. It's also, yeah. you know, like I mentioned, we haven't had these, you know, constant invasions uh, or, yeah. you know, some parts of the country have, have a lot of disasters. They tend to be tighter, but we don't have the kind of collective threats for centuries that have been, mm. you know, to some extent from a cultural coevolutionary perspective, even though there's no data really on this, that we haven't had this kind of development of that normative psychology yeah. as strongly as other cultures that have needed it. I do want to mention, though, again, like as soon as we do have these threats, we seem to, uh, particularly human-made threats, you know, tighten up. After the Boston bombing, we could see in some of our data that that people who felt strongly affected by this wanted stronger rules. They thought the U.S. was too loose. And that was the same with our Trump data. You know, so I think it is something that as countries get more threatened, they tend to tighten up. But in the U.S., there's this attractor from a Mm. dynamical systems perspective that we struggle with you know, tightening for any extended period of time. Of course, now we have pockets of tightening across the U.S., as I mm-hmm. mentioned, yeah. based on objective threat. So I have a question there. So like we seem to be talking about this dynamic of uh, tightness, having tightness, having uh, tight norms uh, or loose norms, and then the desire to uh, tighten up. You just mentioned that. Model. So what's the dynamic here? Are these two independent uh, things or is it just a compensation going on? Uh, what did you find in your prior research on this? Yeah, topic? you know, you know, so like social norms are really, a, you know, a collective level construct. But you can also measure this in terms of your just preference for having strong rules and punishments. That's right, that's right. And like I mentioned, you know, what we could see in a really, you know, very quick fashion when people feel um, threatened in the laboratory or in the in the field before elections, they tend to feel that the rules are too loose. They tend to want greater tightness. You know, we've seen that also in some really interesting, ironic types of contexts. Um, for example, in Arab Spring, you know, we all watched it, the context very closely and people were very puzzled by how is it possible that, you know, after rallying together and mobilizing to get rid of these autocratic leaders, that people wound up voting for even more autocratic leaders, <laughs> you know, in these contexts. And from a cross-cultural psychology perspective, it wasn't too puzzling because what we can see in these contexts is that they went from a very strong normative order, very repressive, but you take out that autocratic leader and you go to almost the exact opposite extreme of, of normlessness. We actually measured in Egypt after Mubarak was taken out how people felt about, you know, kind of the norms for, for behavior, what's happening in city streets. And what we could see there is that, you know, people felt very quickly that the environment became totally chaotic and normless, almost anime from a Durkheim perspective. And that predicted their desire for, you know, more autocratic leaders to come in again and have stronger rules. And so that kind of autocratic recidivism dynamic, you know, that's what we call it, you know, that it's not too surprising because when you have excessive looseness, people start getting really nervous about predictability and coordination. And in, in these particular contexts, what a further sort of dynamic is that autocrats operate by getting people to distrust each other. So, you know, because if people trusted each other, then they would overthrow the autocrat. So a lot of these places, they get rid of the autocrat and the people, they don't trust each other. They haven't developed these kind of meso level institutions where people can trust each other. In Egypt, for example, mm-hmm. you, you can't organize sporting events. I mean, it's really very difficult to organize any kind of uh, social action outside of one's very close family. So you know, all that is to say is that when you when you have extreme looseness, it also invites that desire for tightness. And we've seen yeah. that even in contexts like in, in ISIS, you know, that people 
in some areas, welcomed ISIS to provide the needed order in, in contexts that were collapsing. And you would think, you know, that we should keep our eyes out on these contexts. We should keep our eye out on contexts that are becoming extremely normless because they invite often these very tight extremist forces just out of necessity, you know, for basic coordination needs. Of course, ISIS story went south after that. Um, and, but it, it, at first, people did welcome them. We have data to support that in certain regions. Yeah. I'm going back, exactly back to the wisdom topic, sort of a wise leadership, which is kind of an interesting question because I don't think there's a good measure of wise leadership. But let's assume that we we, we can't we can't just uh, assess wise leaders. And uh, I think you you talk a little bit about this in your book. What could be effective leadership strategies in tight versus loose groups and tight versus loose societies? Yeah, so uh, groups, as we mentioned, you know, have to veer tight or loose for good reasons, typically. And so in contexts that are threatened, typically leaders that are seen as really effective are people who are calling the shots, who are making decisions, who are, who are independent. Uh, and, and, and that's a functional strategy in these kinds of contexts when there's real threat. In contexts that are loose, that are less threatened, people want more latitude. They want more vision. They want more collaboration in, and, and participation. <clears throat> and so those leadership strategies, generally speaking, tend to be associated with, with the ecologies of these countries. Now, with that said, what I've been increasingly interested in is how leaders become what I would call ambidextrous. I think wise leaders are able to manage norm strength really deliberately. They know when to tighten up. They know when to loosen up. They know how to bring groups together that have different strengths that really are suspicious of each other. This happens a lot in companies that have you know, a lot of um, diverse units where you have a manufacturing unit that needs to be tight and an R&D unit that needs to be loose, or you have mergers. I, I've, I've seen companies that are in manufacturing trying to bring in loose groups to be more creative. And then guess what? They can't stand each other <laughs> because they have <clears throat> different people and mentalities and mindsets. You know, the, the tighter groups don't want to lose control and the looser groups don't want to lose autonomy. And in the book, I talk about some case studies of Leaders who were really able to help these groups to not feel threatened by each other, to have common goals, to appreciate each other's strengths. Mm-hmm. Um, the leaders who are able to see the, the groups that are getting too loose and inject some structure, that kind of structured looseness. Or the leaders that can see, you know what, even in the military, like maybe we don't need so many rules. You know, uh, maybe, you know, we can negotiate um, to have fewer rules in domains that don't have to do with safety. And I'm actually working with the Navy right now to try to develop measures of tight, loose ambidexterity and look at how it's affecting units. Again, with the idea that these units <clears throat> need tightness. They, you, we want them to be able to coordinate, but maybe there's ways to inject some flexibility into that system. And I think the wise leaders, I don't think this happens naturally. I think it's a skill that you develop. You start thinking mm-hmm. about norm strength and you're deliberate about the places that you cultivate it. Do, do you hear when you speak to, you know, um, if you do do work with companies, do you hear them talking about this kind of thinking in, in at leadership level? Or when you talk in this way, are they like, I have no idea what you're talking about. This is completely new <laughs> to me. Or is this a kind of way that you have found in the real world that successful leaders do actually operate? Or is this just like, this sounds like it, it should work? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I was um, giving a workshop at Harvard on sabbatical for a two-day workshop with chief learning officers from many companies. And, you know, it was really about just getting this terminology out there to kind of think about mm. And I found that it was extremely productive. Like I had a lot of conversations after the workshop about, you know, this language being useful to just sit down and talk about these differences with more empathy, with more understanding, 
with the with the idea that you know they have to be negotiated. So with those kinds of vocabulary, I think it makes it possible to start being more mindful and wise about how we balance the strength of norms, even in contexts that need to veer tighter or looser. So I did find that it was really welcome terminology. And, and it's not easy. I mean, I, I'll say one example was a manufacturer, different manufacturing firm that, you know, realized it had too tight of a system and it had to give more discretion to employees. But once they did that, the employees felt too lost. You know, they felt like right. they, they went too far. It's, a, it's not an easy process, but in some cases it happens trial by error. But nevertheless, having the terminology, having the understanding of the constructs, I think is the first step in being wise in negotiating these things, whether it's within an organization, between organizations as they merge. Or within families, you know, that it's something that's eminently negotiable once you really, you know, dig, dig deeply into the, the, what these differences mean and why they exist. When you mention families there, that's interesting because I was thinking, you know, in terms of us as individuals, you know, um, in our daily lives, we will, as you mentioned right at the beginning of the program, we sort of do navigate cultures of different tightness and looseness in our daily lives. So is that something that we just naturally can do and we've grown up doing so it's not a big deal or is it actually if by thinking about this kind of language and vocabulary is that something we can do better and how, how might we do that better <laughs> yeah you know i have a whole section on the tight loose mindset you know i don't want to confound levels of analysis Igor. to your point earlier you know i i don't want to say there's tight and loose individuals per se but certainly we have some people have higher normative radar i call them using the muppet mentality they're more like order muppets you know like kermit the frog and bert you know, they're sort of, mm-hmm. you know, people who are attentive to rules and they're managing yeah. their impulses. They like structure. They like order. That's totally me. I'm coming. <laughs> Absolutely. Then you have the loose mindsets, the kind of order, the chaos muppets. You know, this is kind of like Oscar, not Oscar, this is kind of like uh, Cookie Monster and Cookie Ernie Monster, and, yeah. uh, and, you know, Animal. Kind of animal. Yeah. And, 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 you know, people, and these, these mindsets are like not as attentive to rules, uh, not as high self-monitoring, not as much controlling impulses, quasi-impulsive, but also embracing ambiguity uh, and risk-taking. So what I find in, you know, in daily life, it's important is to think about, one, how calibrated is our own mindset for whatever reason we've developed it based on our histories and culture, class, et cetera. How is it calibrated with the organizations we work in, with the people that we hang out with? I, I for example, you know, I'm, on vacations... <laughs> tight loose conflict comes up a lot you know there might be some people who want all this spontaneity and it's kind of let's go with the flow that's kind of me versus the kind of planning and they sort of like what what seems to be totally chaotic from the sort of more order muppets and i've now come to start negotiating that with my siblings when we go on a a family vacation or Mm -hmm. in financial decision making with spouses or even in how clean you know how much we're messy around the house i mean i get Mm -hmm. a lot of feedback about me leaving towels on the bed and you know, not putting the dishwasher, you know, on right or whatever. But, you know, the more important point is that a lot of conflict that we have with people, whether it's our colleagues, our spouses, our bosses, you know, in part stem from some of these differences. Um, and often I think we don't really think about, well, why do they, are they the way that they are? Why might they have developed that mentality? And then furthermore, what can we negotiate about this? Like, how can we allow that person to have the domains that really matter to them to be tight, be tight? But then give up on some domains that are less important because we tend to kind of um, spill over our need for tightness or looseness in different domains where we can actually trade off on these things. Yeah, sure. Yeah, that's interesting. (laughs) And I suppose maybe there are certain domains which is like, look, if you're going to book the flights for the holiday, give that to the tight person. Um, And if you're... (laughs) You know, um, uh, and planning the day, maybe that could be more of a sort of a loose kind of kind of person's job. There must be some roles that it would be better to have someone with a tendency for one or the other in, I would have thought. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I think it's just exciting to actively talk about culture, you know, be intentional about it. Because, uh, you know, otherwise it's just omnipresent, invisible, affecting us. Uh, I, I mentioned dinner with my kids, you know, we sort of decided, okay, you know, for schoolwork, it's tight. You've got to really work hard. And for how you treat each other, you know, you have to treat each other with respect. And uh, But in other domains, you know, they could be as messy as they want. Like, I'm not going to look at their room. You know, I, you know, it's, I think my husband struggles with that because he's more neat. But it's, <laughs> but it's a, I find it to be a really good negotiation because, you know, we can't always be super tight. we got to find domains where we, of course, I much prefer them to be neat, but maybe I can give up a little bit on that. And I think that's something that we can do in organizations as well and in and vacations. Yeah. It takes, do you, you know, see, negotiation is complicated. It takes a while and it takes creativity, yeah. but it can do, be done. Do you, because, you know, now that you have this lens that you must like look at your friends and couples that you know <laughs> through that lens and it do, this is completely no evidence, just completely, uh, you know, we won't hold you to this at all. But do you kind of notice, um, there's a tight one and a loose one in a couple. Does it work like that? You know, like the whole cat and dog <laughs> idea. Um, and again, this is not science. This is just anecdotes. Cause it kind of, from the way you're talking about it, it sounds like, uh, a relationship would probably be sustainable if it had one of each and perhaps not if it had two of one or two of the other. Well, yeah, I think it's a balance, you know, because yeah. like, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I had some people, I, on my website, I have a place where people can send me stories about mm. tight loose. And, and I have one couple who wrote in and I love this. This is the most important thing about, writing a book is just learning from people. Like how does this mm. affect you? Like what is different about this than I had really thought about? I, I'm really want to learn is. from people. And this couple wrote and said, you know, we're really tight, both of us. And now we kind of realize why we're, you know, having some struggles with being adaptable in our huh. industry or, you know, and it's, it's fascinating to think about that trade off. Like, because on the one hand, like having that similarity is comforting and, mm. and it produces a lot of synchrony. But on the other hand, it, there's a trade off, like we mentioned in terms of order and openness. Uh, I do want to say, though, uh, you know, my poor kids, they do know the tight loose terminology very well. <laughs> and so they, oh so they, they talk about it. I try not to take it too seriously, but it's yeah. fun to sort of see how they can see the world through this. I also, yeah. with my students, I was just having a meeting with one of my students, and we sort of said, you know what, we got to calibrate a little bit better on tight loose, like maybe a little more structure here, a little more freedom here. I think it's yeah. something comes up in my work life um, also these days. Right. So I have a question and now as we're approaching the end of our podcast today, and that is, the, you know, cultures and individuals are flexible, dynamic, and they change uh, over time. And, you know, society may be tight in the face of a threat, as we talked earlier, but then starts to loosen up when things start to go well and maybe become prosperous. Though I don't know how that explains Japanese, but that's a different story. <laughs> uh, um, because they seem to be still very tight in terms of the cultural norm adherence. So uh, your recent work seems to suggest that there are some changes in the United States uh, that happened over the course of the last 200 years. So there are some implications of that for also for things like creativity. Can you tell us just a tiny bit more towards the end about what you found? Yeah, sure. So, you know, actually we were really inspired, Igor, by your work on culture change um, to you. look at, you know, I mean, it's hard to study culture change, of course, because we don't have the ability to give people surveys 200 years ago, but <laughs> we can look at, you know, through linguistic dictionaries and some computational science, we could try to start developing ways to approach norm change over time. And that's what we just looked at. We could see, you know, over the last 200 years in the U.S. that norms have loosened up. I mean, we could see that anecdotally with, you know, the kind of language we use, the kind of clothes we wear uh, and, and so forth and many other indicators. 
but we wanted to try to quantify that and also see how it connects with this order openness trade-off I was mentioning. And we could see that as norms loosen up, um, it's associated with, over time, greater creativity, um, more patents, trademarks, feature films, and so forth. I mean, controlling for lots of things, but it also comes with this kind of trade-off of having uh, less order um, in the sense of having, for example, lower school attendance and more teenage pregnancy and higher mm-hmm. debt. Um, so that is something that I think is interesting to look at. Overall, we could see loosening. I think this would be, you know, something that Steven Pinker in his work on threat would argue, you know, we'd be becoming much less threatened in general. Um, and that we should see in my work that, you know, then that sort of attention to self-control and norms should start loosening a bit. I think there's also some evidence, though, that, you know, different time periods tighten up. Like you mentioned, it's dynamic, you know, whether it's real or objective, uh, we see increases in tightness in, in certain parts of the country. We see that around the world. I don't see any general trend that countries are going to be becoming more loose. I think it's actually now we're seeing different axes of tight loose developing depending on urban and rural context, for example. Mm. Um, uh, we also see, you know, very interesting patterns of tight loose that are deliberately top down in China. For example, I mentioned earlier, this really interesting research in China these days, looking at how the government is actively loosening economic norms, but tightening many social norms at the same time. Mm. And so, you know, one of the interesting things to start looking at these patterns of how cultures are changing, but these kind of idiosyncratic um, cultural patterns that happen within unique contexts. So uh, we'll start hopefully being able to track some of those trajectories and and also start thinking about how, as humans, we've invented social norms. Like we can actually tighten norms when they need to be tightened, when they become too loose, or we can loosen norms when they've gotten too tight. Uh, that's a really interesting question. Iceland is a really great example I talked about in the book. They, they were having massive alcoholism and, and social control problems, and they sort of gathered together um, as a country to say we need to deliberately start enforcing stricter norms for the health of this country. Other contexts also starting to think about how do we sort of tighten up norms that got too loose or, or vice versa. And that's something I think right. is very powerful from a wisdom point of view is how do we calibrate the strength of norms in ways that can make us the healthiest groups and societies. It's really interesting. You talk in your book about the Goldilocks principle. Uh, I, I frankly never encountered that term before, uh, but uh, I mean, I had to look it up. Well, I mean, you know, I know Goldilocks. I didn't know that there is a principle about it. Uh, <laughs> It makes sense. Uh, But it is essentially the idea of the golden mean, which has been promoted in various philosophical traditions uh, as sort of like one way to characterize a wise decision, right? Um, It's very interesting. So it's like, what is the Goldilocks for tight loose? Yeah, I mean, I would sort of modify the golden mean because, you know, for years people talked about, particularly related to norms, you know, should we have latitude or should we have constraint? You know, there were people like Plato and Confucius who advocated in Hobbes for rules. And there were people, you know, like Freud and uh, John Stuart Mill who would say, no, we we need latitude. And my take on this is that neither are correct. Like groups need to veer in either direction for good reasons, but it's really the extremes that really are the problem. But that would be very Aristotelian. Yeah, it is. I mean, I think it's saying like we need to balance the culture based on our contingencies, based on the environments that we're in. We shouldn't think there's one strategy that fits all. American policy, you know, is very, very guilty of this, that, you know, every culture should have this kind of setup (laughs) that we have. Mm. But at the same time, I, I think Goldilocks had a lot of wisdom, you know, that 
it's and it's been applied to climate change. It's been applied to stress. You know that we need some stress to be effective. Um, mm-hmm. The Goldilocks principle, strangely enough, has also been applied to like birds. You know that birds that are too synchronized get really eaten alive by predators because the predator just comes right in and just grabs all those birds. But if birds are not synchronized enough, they can't communicate with each other when a predator comes. And so there's this kind of um, sweet spot, even when it comes to organizing in birds, that we can learn from. And so I've been starting to think about the Goldilocks principle and and looking at this, you know, in schools and families and organizations, again, with the idea that there's no one size fits all, but that we should be keeping our eyes out for how to deal with those kinds of extremes and and actively negotiate them. The uh, Goldilocks principle comes up in astronomy, of course, as well, you know, in terms of, you know, you need to be within a certain range away from the star so that you can have um, uh, water in its liquid state. So because you need liquid water for life so that's the kind of that's the the goldilocks region ra- around a star uh, unfortunately we're in it so that's that's a bit of luck um, yeah. um is there something on your website where people can actually do some sort of assessment to work out like a tightness looseness score because that would be that would be quite helpful yeah on the website you know there's all sorts of uh there's excerpts on the book there's um, a tight loose mindset quiz that's based on the research that we did and published in science a few years ago um and it's also some context that these differences might really be important in, in the family and relationships and organizations. Mm-hmm. And there's also a place to give uh, stories back to me. You know, I really would love to hear from your audience. Uh, I've gotten a lot of different uh, views on, you know, how this relates to people's lives. And it's really important to me to, to learn about that. Uh, it's my favorite thing to do. And, and like you said, that's why I wrote the book. I wanted to get this language out there, this, this yeah. framing. Um, it's obviously... Um, Life is comp- complicated, but I think it can help you know, us simplify and, and communicate better and understand cultural differences in a wiser way than without it. I can't wait to do it. I'm going. When we finish today, I'm going right on there. I'm going to find. I got a feeling that I'm going to come out as like a green Kermit the Frog type. Um, <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, there's no pictures of the Muppets on there, but I think oh, it's wow. uh... something to think about. So we should add those. Yeah. <laughs> So thank you so much, Michelle, for being on our show today. This uh, was wonderful. We really learned a lot more about both of us as well as uh, cultural differences and uh, the role of uh, culture and tightness of social norms as well as loose social norms for wisdom. Thank you so much for having me. Loved our conversation. Thank you very much, Michelle. We have three cultures actually in this podcast. So that's, that's a perfect setup. Well, probably yeah, more than so three, but yeah. <laughs> Now it's time for the summary. Today we talked about social norms and how they help us to predict each other's behavior and coordinate as a group. All societies have social norms, but how strictly they are followed, how strictly transgressions are punished varies considerably. Some cultures are tight and some are loose with respect to how social norms are enforced. What makes some cultures tight and others loose? Cultures vary dramatically in that, and level of threat is a major factor. Being too loose can be bad. It can lead to disorganization. Being too tight can stifle innovation. Therefore, organizations need to calibrate themselves appropriately depending on their ecology. Successful company mergers often involve bringing together parties who can bring tightness and looseness. Certain sectors of culture that feel threat or perceive threat more keenly may lead to certain tightness-enforcing norms. Vice leaders are able to be ambidextrous, be tight and loose when necessary, and bring together groups with different tendencies behind common goals. At the end, we talked about the Goldilocks principle, which is similar to the Aristotelian golden mean. 
and suggests that extremes tend to be harmful and it is the optimal amount of tightness and looseness can be most beneficial in our personal life, in groups, and on a cultural level.